Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from Crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on a platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto.Law, a.k.a. Kelman Law, is a New York law firm run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013 with expertise in litigation, dispute resolution, and anti-money laundering. Email them at info at kelman.law. Today's guest is Caitlin Long, a Wall Street veteran, former president of Symbiont, and appointee to the Wyoming Blockchain Task Force. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi there. Nice to be back with you. What I didn't say when I introduced you is that this week you announced a new venture. Why don't you tell everyone about the new company you're founding? Avanti Bank is a, a, a company that's been formed to apply for a Wyoming special purpose depository institution license under the law that was passed last year in Wyoming to create a new type of bank to service the digital asset industry. It will be a 100% reserve bank and it will provide custody services for digital assets. There are several products that this new type of license will enable that the market currently is not providing and that will hopefully help bring more and more investors, especially institutional investors, into crypto assets. And when you talk about those products and services that are not being offered, what are you thinking of? What will your bank offer? Uh, the, the most obvious example, which a number of folks have I have noted is a, a, a something missing from the market right now, is a particular type of legal regime for security token custody. It, right now, when the SEC came out with its joint guidance with FINRA last year, it noted that under the SEC customer protection rule, it's required that the custodian have what's called a good control location, but the SEC has not defined what that means. However, it did note that under the customer protection rule, a bank has a safe harbor for good control location. The challenge in the United States is that FDIC-insured banks are not allowed to provide custody services for digital assets. So it was a perfect catch-22. The only way to get good control location is with a bank, and yet banks couldn't provide the custody services, well, now a particular type of bank, that that being a Wyoming special purpose depository institution, is allowed to, and we just need to get through the process along with a couple of others who are applying as well. And what does good control location mean? 
It just has to do with the custodian having control over the asset. Uh, Actually, the question you're asking is exactly the question everyone else is asking with regard to a digital (laughs) asset. What does it mean? And the SEC hasn't, hasn't explained it. Uh, It just, it just said that, that a bank has a, has a safe harbor for it. Uh, And it turns out that trust companies do not qualify as banks under the definition of bank. They are excluded from the uh, the Securities Exchange Act of 34. Uh, and there are requirements that to be a bank, you have to, number one, take deposits and number two, provide fiduciary services. Well, trust companies aren't doing either because it turns out, unless they're also doing something else, that custody of digital assets is not a fiduciary service. And because trust companies aren't banks, they can't take deposits. So it was a perfect catch-22 in the regulations where the the regulators in D.C. were all pointing at each other saying it's their responsibility. And Wyoming is the one that stepped forward and broke through. I saw lots of attempts, by the way, over the fall the, uh, to, to, to form these SPDIs. The applications for the licenses opened October 1st. And this got a lot of fanfare about a year ago when it became law. Uh, more than 100 people, according to the Wyoming Banking Division, inquired about starting one of these. Most of them fell away. And a lot of the reason for it was that the capital requirement is so high. A, bank's, a bank has a very high capital requirement. And, uh, and, and as a result, what, what I started to see was that it wasn't going to happen if someone didn't step up and kind of do it as a consortium for the industry. This is a need that needed to be filled, but the individual protocol projects were not in and of themselves willing to step up and fund it. Huh, that's interesting. And I, when you say like, you know, a lot of these things haven't even been, been defined yet for the digital asset interesting industry. I think it's uh, great that in a way you can be um, pioneering and, and help set yes. the standards with this, uh, because Wyoming is your home state. So it's very fitting. Um, so one other question I want to ask you was who do you expect your customers to be? Well, for Avanti, we're going after the institutional market. There are a couple of others that are hanging around the hoop in Wyoming who are are going after the retail market, and we hope to be able to do some things with them uh, if we all make it through the process and get our licenses. But there wasn't anybody stepping up for the institutional market, which is where I saw a need. And in particular, uh, it, the, the best example is the universities that would like to receive digital asset gifts from alumni, but are not in a position to accept them because there isn't a third party that's willing to work with them to provide the services that they need. Um, for example, um, under um, in, in the U.S. under the custody rule, asset managers are required by law to have a third party store their assets. The, the, the management of the assets has to be separated from the custody of the assets. And again, the big custodians are FDIC-insured banks. So uh, as a result, we're in that catch-22 where there was a log jam that needed to be broken. And so I was going to ask you like who your competitors would be, but I realized in a way, maybe it's that you're sort of forming a new category or, or would you say like, are you, cause I mean, I guess Coinbase does serve some institutions, right? With Coinbase custody and stuff like that. Sure. 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 I think the difference is the definition of institution. There are a lot of folks in the crypto world who look at a, you know, small $25 million crypto fund and say that's an institution. And technically it is. 
but what I'm looking at is the markets that I came from earlier in my career, the pension funds, the endowments, the foundations, the sovereign wealth funds. These are the really big money investors for whom the asset class up until this point has actually just been too small uh, and, and not investable. Well, now we're getting to the point where it, to the extent that Bitcoin does continue to go up, uh, it, it, get, it becomes a bigger asset class. It starts to become too big to ignore. And then they start looking around and saying, where's the infrastructure? One of the other points that, that I've noticed is that the, in, the institutional infrastructure in this market isn't ready for prime time with these very big traditional big asset owner institutions. Again, it's more, more aimed at the, the smaller, more risk, risk taking institutions like hedge funds or small, small funds that already exist. And most, most folks, when they say there are institutions in crypto, that's what they mean. Again, the big guys really are not there. They have a much stand, much, much higher standard of professionalism that they require. And when I looked around at the folks that are, that are, that are serving the institutional market right now. First of all, they're trust companies um, from a regulatory perspective. And th- there are two issues with trust companies for the big, big, big investors. One is that they're not directly connected to the Fed because they're not banks. And there's a reason why State Street and Bank of New York, you know, in the securities industry are banks. They're connected to the Fed and that's what the institutions want to see. Um, and then the other is that the, the trust companies are, um, that you don't know what your status in bankruptcy is. And again, this is another one of the reasons why the banks win from a regulatory perspective. But there's a, there's also another issue that I, I started looking at the terms and conditions of the folks that are serving the quote unquote, the institutional market right now. And it is, it, to be honest, in, in some cases, it's a joke. Uh, there, there's one that's serving the institutional market that defines Bitcoin as quote, a digital asset. If they all of a sudden wake up and decide that Bitcoin is suddenly Bitcoin cash and the customers go to sue them, they would have no claim in court because the contract was so vaguely drafted. There was really nothing promised. Uh, the fork policy is another one where I was looking at one, again, institutional uh, firm and the fork policy said that they had in, in their sole discretion the ability to follow a fork, if any. And again, what's the legal, legally enforceable promise in the language there? It, there's nothing. Uh, so when, when an institutional attorney, and again, I'm talking about a pension fund type of attorney, starts looking at the terms and conditions in the contract, they're, they're going to say, look, that, that's not even close to the standards that I need. Um, and, and lastly, the, there's another piece of this. You alluded to it in, in your question. Wyoming defined the status of digital assets under Wyoming's commercial law. We're the only state to have done that. And that would, therefore, we're the only state that would be allowed to start a bank because you have to know what the status of those assets would be in in a legal dispute. And again, this gets back to institutions needing to have um, clear clear rights and, and obligations in the transactions. And if you don't know what the status of the asset class is in a legal dispute, you're taking a lot of, of risk that a judge is, is, uh, is, is going to uh, determine a, a lawsuit against you rather than in your favor. And institutions just can't take that risk. They also can't take the bankruptcy risk. And again, if a judge doesn't know what the exact status of the assets are under the law, 
then then you don't know what your outcome is going to be in bankruptcy. So all these things are important building blocks that had to get put in place before we really go prime time. Yeah, so we're going to dive a little bit more into some of the regulations that made this possible, as well as some of the technical details. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.Law is run by crypto OGs in New York who understand crypto and fintech. They were already operating in the space back in 2013, and they accept crypto as payment. One of the partners, Zachary Kelman, is known for drafting a bill submitted to the U.S. Congress in 2014 aimed at exempting on-chain Bitcoin transactions from U.S. regulations. The other founding partner, his brother Daniel Kelman, became well-known in the crypto law space for his work in the Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation. So if you operate a fintech business or have a dispute with some person or business involving crypto, or you just need legal advice related to crypto, info at kelman.law. That's K-E-L-M-A-N dot law, or just go to their website at www.crypto.law. When you think crypto, think Kelman. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets, but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called CopyTrader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Back to my conversation with Caitlin Long. So actually, before we get into some of uh, the details around the regulatory and technical details, I actually also wanted to ask another thing, because you had this uh, great tweet storm about Avanti Bank. And one of the things is that you said that the bank will have the not your keys, not your coins ethos built in. How so? Well, we'll be providing services around digital assets. So yes, it's a bank, which of course makes some folks' heads explode in this industry. Aren't we trying to get away from banks? Yes. But it's a regulatory tool to allow us to deliver services around digital assets. So one example might be the uh, key signing, multi-sig key signature services. There, there may be some institutions that for control reasons want to have a bank, even if the assets are not actually custodied at the bank, if they're not on deposit at the bank, but they actually want a bank to be providing as a fiduciary or not um, the services around multi-sig. Uh, so that's, that's one example. And, and in the Wyoming law, as you, as you may know, there are different levels of of, of custody that you can choose. So there's a, there's a, no, you can choose a non-fungible bailment or a fungible bailment. Uh, a non-fungible bailment would be literally where the bank is actually holding your treasure or your ledger or your HSM for you. Um, and you get it back uh, because it's, it's literally held in a vault. Um, and actually, Caitlin, um, can you, mm-hmm. can you define bailment for people? Yes, a bailment is a, a common law legal concept that has been around for centuries, but uh, just hasn't been applied to financial services for a few decades in the U.S. And that is a- akin to valet parking for your car or coat check. When you turn your asset over to the service provider for safekeeping, they're just providing a service. You're not actually turning over a legal title to the asset. It turns out the way that the financial markets are structured in the U.S. and the U.K. and many other developed countries is that 
when you turn your financial asset over to a bank or a broker dealer, you're actually giving them legal title to the asset. And what you get back is an IOU. In, in the Wyoming structure, you're not giving up legal title. You're just giving temporary possession. And the only thing that the service provider can do is store that for you, keep it safe until you want it back. And so I interrupted you. You were going to also then describe fungible bailment. Yeah, a, fund- a fungible bailment would be where you're actually sending the asset in for safekeeping, but you're not going to get your same UTXOs back or you're not actually sending in hardware. You're actually transferring the asset in for safekeeping. It is more of a custodial relationship. But what's interesting is that even though the keys in that case would be kept by the custodian, uh, so it doesn't uh, comply with not your keys, not your coins, you still have legal title to the asset. What's the impact of that? It means that if the custodian goes bankrupt, that your asset is outside of the bankruptcy estate and you don't have a problem like you did in the Lehman or MF Global situation where you have to wait years to get it back. You have to go through the bankruptcy process to get your asset back. With a bailment, it's legally outside of the bankruptcy estate. Therefore, the bank is just a service provider, not a counterparty. You're not in a debtor-creditor relationship with the bank as you are in traditional financial services. So I also want to highlight one other part about these special purpose depository institutions um, under the Wyoming law which is that you tweeted that the banks who obtain this and and correct me if I'm if I misunderstood but they could potentially get around the bit license in New York with with that what do you mean by that Ah, well, so this is a very good question. And for those who are not familiar with the hierarchy of financial regulations, there are basically in the U.S. four different types of financial institutions. And at the bottom of the, of the barrel is money transmitters. It's really easy to get money transmitter licenses. That's a state by state licensing regime. And in some states, I think in Alabama, all you have to do is put up a $5,000 bond. It doesn't cost much. Up above that is trust companies, and you can get a trust company for you know a hundred thousand dollars in capital. And the, the trust companies serving this industry really are not well capitalized. Then above that is a bank. Now you're talking a minimum twenty five million dollars, so big step up in capital. But because you're a bank, you get direct access to the Fed. And then at the top of the pyramid is the primary dealers that uh, that deal with uh, treasury auctions and. And the like, and they obviously, um, you know, can clear most of the payments in the banking system. The bit license in New York is kind of between a money transmitter and a trust company. So here we come in with a bank from Wyoming with much, much higher capital requirements. And because it's a bank, um, and of course it has uh, direct access to the Fed, because it's a bank, there's a, a whole history of litigation on how state chartered banks are treated by other states. And there's actually federal law that precludes other states from discriminating against other state state charter banks when they want to open a branch. So what we have is a, another state state charter bank, i.e. a Wyoming special purpose depository institution, wanting to come into a state like New York. It's one of the few states that actually will require a Wyoming speedy bank to, um, to, to apply to come in, but lots of, of legal precedent that they cannot deny the application to come in and open a branch in New York. So it's yet to be done. Uh, this is going to be fun to watch. 
<laughs> yeah, I wonder if um, the New York listeners are going to get really excited by this. Um, but anyway, uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask about was the law for the SPDIs. It goes into quite a bit of detail around things like the airdrops and forks and staking, which you um, kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit more because so essentially what's going to happen is that, you know, under this law, all of those will accrue to the customer, not to the institution. And right. so how do you expect to handle that on the back end? Because as far as I understand, like, you know, anytime you deal with a new chain, whether it's a fork or an airdrop, I mean, there's there can be issues like if there's not replay protection built in or or even just, you know, adding any new chain can can take quite a bit of work. So um, yes. is that where your partnership with Blockstream? comes in or, or, you know, how are you going to handle that? Yes. Well, the partnership with Blockstream is obviously starting with Bitcoin. That's the one that the institutions are, are, are uh, obviously um, most, in, most demanding right now. It's, it's the most institutionally investable chain among the big institutions that we're targeting. But the next, the next piece is, if we step back, the, the, the philosophy of the Wyoming law is that the, this bank should be a service provider, not a counterparty, unless you choose for it to be. And so one of the, the implications of that is uh, you have to define the asset very clearly up front. So I alluded earlier to one of the institutional players who calls Bitcoin, quote, unquote, a digital asset. Well, the Wyoming law requires these speedy banks to define the asset by reference to the source code version on GitHub in your contract. So you actually have a contractual right to an asset based on that version of the software. So when you get to things like forks and airdrops, it, 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 it basically says the customer has a, has a property right. The bank has to deliver that property. However, if there is a fork that the bank considers insecure, the, the bank is not required to, to support it. Uh, but because it's a property rights-based approach, let's take the example of the ETH, ETH Classic fork. The, where, where the where the new coin became the ongoing chain and ETH Classic, the original one, uh, was not the ongoing one. Um, in that case, the, ob- the the bank has an obligation to get an um, a, a actual approval, actual consent from each customer to change the nature of the of the property that they have a con- contractual right to deliver. Or they have to give it back. So the bank is not in a situation where it has to take undue security risk. That makes no sense. All it, all it has to do is treat its customers like their institutions, like it has a contractual obligation to actually deliver something. And when that, when that asset changes character, then it, the bank can either decide to support it or not support it. But if it doesn't support it, it has to get, has to get consent or give the original asset back. So in that in that case, it would be the ETH Classic. It would actually have to give the ETH Classic back to the customer if it doesn't support it. Oh wow! It. Oh, that's that's really interesting because that's very pretty customer different friendly. From, yep. Yeah. Huh. That yeah. The, what well, we won't get into all the deals, details of what happened at that time, but yeah, the, that's quite different from what actually happened. All yep. right. Well, when will Avanti be open? It, this is a long process. So managing out everybody's expectations, it's at minimum a six to nine month process to get a bank license. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be one of the first ones through the door. So uh, we, we said early 2021. 
Okay, great. Well, we look forward to seeing that when that happens. Um, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks. It's nice to speak with you again. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from Crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. There are so many cool perks loaded in one card. Download the Crypto.com app now. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, close to half of Square Cash app's Q4 revenues came from Bitcoin. Payments company Square reported fourth quarter revenue results. On its, on its Cash app, Bitcoin revenues totaled $178 million, while non-Bitcoin revenue came to $183 million. The amount of Bitcoin sold was up about 20% from the previous quarter and almost two and a half times what it was the previous year. The block reported that on the earnings call, CEO Jack Dorsey said, quote, Bitcoin actives generating 2 to 3x annual revenue compared to other cash customers. Next headline, how DeFi can survive a world with flashed attacks. Hasib Qureshi of Dragonfly Capital wrote a great piece on the significance of the BZX attacks and how DeFi should live in a world where they exist. As he writes, quote, with flash loans, attackers no longer need to have any skin in the game. Flash loans materially change the risks for an attacker. He says DeFi protocols should mitigate these attacks by using market-based price oracles that involve a weighted average over the previous X number of blocks, requiring that governance tokens be locked up for the voting period to prevent flash attacks on governance, and implementing governance time locks, meaning instituting a delay on any governance decisions. Finally, he warns that all flash attacks could be stolen by miners, though he notes that that would not be the case in Ethereum 2.0 since transaction finality is not possible in a proof-of-work system. I highly recommend this essay. I know people are still chewing on the lessons from the BZX attacks, and this is a good one. Next headline, Compound Introduces a Governance Token. Lending protocol Compound takes one step toward fully decentralizing itself by introducing a token called Comp. For now, the way it will work in governance is that anyone with 1% of comp can propose a governance action, and proposals are subject to a three-day voting period. If a majority of voters are four, then the proposal goes into a time lock and can be implemented after two days. Next headline, IOTA shut down, still among the top 25 coins by market cap. IOTA has been turned off since February 12th, and the market cap still ranks, at the time of writing, 24th amongst all coins. The three-part blog post from the IOTA Foundation is a bit difficult to follow, but basically they can't yet say for sure how the attack happened, but the attack did obtain passwords and seeds, and the foundation is working on a way to migrate tokens to new seeds. Eric Wall tweeted, quote, this whole clusterfuck seems to have been overlooked because people are still processing the fact that IOTA shut down for more than 12 days and that the founders are pub publicly fighting over tens of millions of dollars of the unclaimed funds they stole from the ICO. All I can say is that IOTA has now successfully become tangled up in so many outrageous messes simultaneously that it is apparently no longer possible for the public to follow along with each different part of this multiplex train wreck. Each disaster distracts from the other. 
Lee Quinn of Coindesk also had an entertaining story called IOTA being shut off is the latest chapter in an absurdist history, which covers some of the previous scandals. Next headline, Ripple paid MoneyGram $11.3 million. MoneyGram received $11.3 million from Ripple during the last half of 2019. In an earnings call, Lawrence Angelili, MoneyGram CFO, said, quote, As we've discussed in the past, MoneyGram receives a market development fee based on the volume of foreign exchange that we transact on Ripple's platform. Ripple had previously also invested $50 million in a MoneyGram. Speaking of Ripple, Compound General Counsel Jake Chervinsky tweeted, quote, The judge in the XRP securities class action has granted in part and denied in part Ripple's motion to dismiss the case. There's a lot going on here, but overall, it's a victory for the plaintiffs. The securities claims survive. XRP stays in the crosshairs. Fun bits. Bitcoin intro slideshow. Steve Lee of Square Crypto created a great presentation on Bitcoin that might be useful in using to explain these concepts to your non-crypto friends. It breaks down mining, Bitcoin's monetary policy, and ends by saying that there's a small probability of a massive shift, which would be the complete reinvention of global finance, and it would introduce Bitcoin as a global currency and unit of account, and a savings-oriented economy and consumption-oriented, uh, and promote a savings-oriented economy versus a consumption-oriented one. Nicely done and thought-provoking too. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Caitlin Long and Avanti Bank, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, then why not sign up for The Real Deal, the weekly newsletter I publish every Friday. Some of you have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned on the show, and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.